This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm reporting the ACR 2022 meeting for Room Now, and I have a very special guest today, Dr. Patricia Dar from Ascension Medical Group in Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Dar. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. I'm so excited that you're here with me because you have studied something that is near and dear to my heart and that is so under like spotlighted. I mean, like people don't really talk about it, and that's sexual health. And so your recent abstract is on a novel method to screen for cervical cancer. Could you give me a little bit in our audience too, a little bit of a background as to the genesis of this project? So I've sort of been working on this um, for many years and it started many years ago when I was um, at Wayne State, which I'm still um, clinical faculty on in Detroit, where I was noticing that women with lupus were having abnormal pap smears. So we looked at this and we uh, realized that the risk for abnormal pap smears, mostly dysplasia, was markedly increased compared to the general population. Um, and these are women that are immunosuppressed. And at that time there was no vaccine. So we looked at HPV and found um, that HPV was latent and not actively being transcribed. It was a small study where we looked at formalin fixed tissue and we did HPV uh, genetic analysis. And we saw that it was, there was DNA, but there was no RNA. So it was just sitting there. And we also looked at integration, did not find integration. I was, I was expecting to find integration and we did not find it in that small study, but that was on formalin fixed tissue. So that led to another study. And I was um, very lucky that Merck decided to support uh, an investigator initiated study where we actually looked at the safety and immunogenicity of Gardasil vaccine and lupus. And um, we were, at that time, the indication was only up to age 26, but my thinking is women are sexually active most of their lives. They remain at risk for HPV. I'm sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> So I apologize for that. Um, they remain at risk for HPV. Um, and why can't they get the vaccine after that? Because maybe they were exposed to one type and not the other. So we, we asked for um, in the grant that the um, vaccine women be allowed to get it up to age 50. So then uh, it was initially a phase three where we were going to look at really sick patients that were immunosuppressed and look at immunogenicity, but the FDA got involved because it was outside of the um, indication and they turned a phase three into a phase phase one trial and then it doubled the budget, but they were nice enough to <laughs> fund it. So um, we completed that study and then um, I uh, decided to kind of look more at HPV. So that led to, you know, we did a couple things looking at vaccine uptake and we published on that, uh, showing that there's low uptake. And so um, this, when I, um, I transitioned to Ascension was still affiliated with Wayne. You know, I, I've kind of switched jobs around here in Detroit. So it makes it difficult when you're switching jobs and trying to do research in one area. So. Uh, submitted this grant to Blue Cross because I really wanted to look at HPV a little bit more and start looking at latency and integration and and looking at um, 
you know, while I was doing the study, I'm like, do I really want to bring women in for pap smears? And I have a great team at U of M, Dr. Carey and Dr. Heather Walleen, and they were doing cervical brush samples for an oral cancer study. And um, so we looked into that and I actually contacted the um, manufacturer in Amsterdam who provided these brushes free of charge for me. Um, so that was a way to bring women in, didn't have to do a pap smear. They could, could teach them to uh, how to use the brush and they would do self sampling. So that's, that's how the study got funded. It was a, a team effort. And then um, my, uh, there was a new, um, head of the Mott Center at Wayne State, where I had worked before with my mentor, and he was interested in vaginal cytokines. And I said, well, why don't we look at uh, mRNA for vaginal cytokines? Um, so I'm just lucky. And I had a great cytopathologist at Ascension, Dr. Fatala, who uh, we put it through. I said, I want this to be handled exactly like uh, we would handle a normal pap smear specimen. And so it was handled just like that. And nobody had ever read morphology off of a brush sample. So we didn't have any reference. So we found out we were able to read morphology, but there weren't any quality indicators. Um, you know, and so I said to my cytopathologist, well, if there's no quality indicators, does that really invalidate the reading? She goes, no, it's better to get a frequent PAP without quality indicators, then not get one for five years with quality indicators. So, you know, that's how, that's sort of the team that I work with. <laughs> so when you mention quality indicators, what are they routinely looking at to determine so that? Yeah, so they're looking at if the sample comes from the os, the endocervical region. So mm -hmm. when you have the brush, you know, it's just brushing the shell, cells that are shed into the vaginal vault. It's inserted like a tampon. So it's very easy for women to use, um, but you don't necessarily, you know, when you do a pap smear, you actually put the sampling spatula or brush in the os to get the endocervical cells. So that's, that's sort of high quality. So we got that in a few samples, but, um, you know, so that's that's a limitation, but more frequent monitoring with maybe a less sensitive method is better than no monitoring at all for high, mm -hmm. especially for high grade. And and I was surprised that we actually picked up abnormal um, cytology with this method. So that was something new that you can read cytology after this uh, with using this method. So that was kind of exciting for us. Um, and then um, looking, I didn't have the HPV analysis done when we submitted the abstract. Uh, so I just added it to the poster. Um, and we were just surprised. Uh, we saw multiple HPV HPV types in women, including non-traditional types like HPV 90, which is becoming now considered a high risk type. So it was very similar to what has been seen in the HIV population. Um, again, it's uh, probably more of a function of immunosuppression. And a lot of these women did not know they had had an HPV infection. And they, you know, when you talk to these women, they're high risk, right? African-American yeah. women are higher risk for cervical cancer. They have higher mortality. African-American women with lupus also have higher mortality. So it's a, it's a double uh, disease burden for them. And they're not getting PAPs on a regular basis. The insurance only covers it every five years. Um, people, it's just not on radar. And, you know, no. 
No, and not yeah. only that, I mean, it, you know, like there were some recent guidelines about how you should treat immunosuppressed patients like HIV patients for getting cervical cancer screening. And I don't yeah. think that rheumatologists know that they're just following general ACOG guidelines, but you know, our patients are immunosuppressed and should be screened regularly. Yeah. And they're the fact that they have multiple types and multiple partners, and it's just kind of like it's spreading STDs both ways. So, you know, a lot of the women were not in this study. And, you know, condoms are not acceptable in some populations. And so I was curious to look at that. Most of these women were not using condoms. They don't really realize the link with HPV and the other related diseases. It's a matter of teaching these women how to take care of themselves and making them aware because then they can advocate, you know, okay, maybe the doctor doesn't, can't keep track of everything, but maybe they can advocate for themselves and say, I need a pap smear. I would like a pap smear and I need to use a condom. I'm not using it for pregnancy prevention. I'm on birth control, but I want to, I need to use a condom to protect myself because once HPV gets into the cervix, you can't get rid of it. And I think it doesn't really go away. I think, you know, there's a second peak of HPV when you get older and people would think, oh, these older women are becoming more sexually active. But I think some of that might be reappearances of the vaccine as, as you get um, older, there's DNA demethylation and you get dysregulation of the immune environment and the cervix. And this HPV can become from, can go from latent to active transcription. So we're actually working with U of M and I have some wonderful investigators at the University of Arizona, Dr. Anderson, who's looking at non-neutralizing antibodies and Dr. Moore is looking at vaginal cytokine and Heather Walleen again, and even Chad Brenner now at the U of M and we're putting together a project. Um, I, I had to shop around to find which agency was interested because it's sort of not your traditional, there's a control population and this and that. It's really hard to do that with lupus and this kind of study. So I wanted to have two purposes of cervical monitoring where we do brush samples and we, we study the biology. What is happening? We look at the vaginal cytokines, we look at the HPV viral load, we look at their immune suppression. And in this trial, I want to offer them the vaccine as, um, as part of an option. So with lupus patients, you can't force treatment. You know, you have to be very hands-on with them. You have to really make them understand what's going on um, because they don't trust the healthcare system a lot of times. And so it takes a while to build bridges. Most of the women were in this study were my patients. Um, and so um, they're, um, you know, I've built some trust with them and always make sure that I do things ethically and don't put my patients at harm. And the ethical thing with this study was that I called every patient and told them what their result was. But then the caveat was, this is a research lab. I can't report this to your doctor. Please go in and see your gynecologist and get a pap smear because we did find, you know, three or four HPV types. You should be using a condom because you've been infected with HPV. Um, so that's the limitation of research studies. It's not a CLIA approved lab, so you can't really report it. So part of what we discuss for this future project is there a way we could report it? We may not be able to because CLIA approved labs are limited with the types of HPV they can test. So we may still just have to call them and inform them. And part of the thing is with education, do they accept the vaccine over time? Um, right. And so 
you know, it was really hard to find an agency that would say, okay, because they usually want, you know, with the NIH cancer branch, which is where I fit, they wanted more of a hypothesis-driven control group. And I'm like, I don't need to waste money on controls. I need to study the biology and offer these women vaccine and, and educate them. Um, so I did find the, the, the uh, one branch, the disparities branch of the NIH, which is friendly to this type of a concept. Um, so we're going to move forward and, you know, keep your fingers crossed. It's always difficult getting funded. So yeah, no, that's, that's great that you're doing this. And so in the last minute that we have, I wanted to um, have you give our audience like tips on how you approach this topic with your patients and how they can integrate it into their practice. So first of all, we have to take away the stigma from HPV. Everybody gets exposed to sexually active, but I always, I always tell my women um, with lupus, you know, you can get HPV and you can get cervical cancer just by not protecting yourself. So why not protect yourself um, and get checked and tested? So a lot of these women, a lot of it is education, use condoms, even if you're on birth control, use condoms to protect yourself. You will not have symptoms until it's late and um, the insurance may not cover pap smears with the frequency that you need it. And the pap, the HPV testing only covers 15 high-risk types and we're seeing a shift uh, to other HPV types. And once HPV gets in your system, can't get rid of it. It sleeps in your cervix forever. I don't think you really get rid of it after two years. I think it's like shingles. Um, or it sleeps in your system. So I, I try to educate them. And when I've changed jobs and I've come back to where my patients can come to see me, it's so funny. Some of them will tell me, I did everything you would have told me to do. I told my doctor to give me a pap smear. I told them I needed an echo. I told them I needed a vaccination. So <laughs> it was really nice. I think, I think, just having a relationship where they trust you and they know you're trying to advocate for their health and then training them to take care of themselves because we're there with them for a short time, but they really have to learn how to take care of themselves. And it's not me giving orders. It's me talking with the patient and empowering them that you have this knowledge. You have the ability to take care of yourself, you know, close the vault you know, protect it. Don't, don't let anybody in the house that you think is not going to be good for you, you know? Um, and a lot of that, you know, these are young women, they're vulnerable, they're depressed. Sometimes people take advantage of them because they want to be loved. And so, you know, it's easy to take advantage of these women because they're very vulnerable and depressed. So part of what I try to do is empower them that, you know, the power's in your hands, you know, protect yourself, you know, you deserve better than this, you know, you deserve to have somebody who cares about you, who doesn't mind using protection to take care of you. So um, part of that, uh, part of my passion is, is teaching women to take care of themselves. And while we monitor them, and we're giving them monitoring with this future study, hopefully, we're educating them. So when they leave the study, or they go somewhere else they know how to take care of themselves and this in this day and age you have to advocate for yourself you, that if is you don't, so important absolutely yeah, yeah if you absolutely. don't advocate for yourself you know you can't depend on 
the doctors to do anything. Doctors aren't aware. So another part of this future study is Ascension's been wonderful. They're going to disseminate inter um, some pay, uh, doctor education through the whole system if we get funded. Um, I'll tell you in a year. If we don't get funded, I'll be depressed for a year. But anyway, <laughs> I was no, so thankful that. I'm so thankful that Blue Cross funded me. I just like, because this is the kind of study people are just like not aware of it. Yeah, that was they brush the, it under the rug. <laughs> yeah, they do. And, you know, COVID yeah. took precedence. And I was so excited. I said, I got funded for a non-COVID study. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending the time talking to us. I'm going to really share this with everybody that I know, all the rheumatologists, all the nurses and healthcare providers and the patients. And, you know, I just love your study and we need to collaborate in the future. Thank you so much. Thank this you so much. I really appreciate your support and getting it out. I really do appreciate your interest because usually no one's interested in what I'm doing at these meetings. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Please follow me on Twitter and follow Dr. Dar and email her if you want to collaborate. Sure, absolutely. I'm all for that. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Hello, it's Mike Putman with Room Now, uh, reporting live from ACR 2022. I am very excited to be discussing Abstract 1677, which is a plenary session tomorrow uh, with its uh, author, Max Koenig. Would you like to introduce yourself? Happy to, Mike. Uh, my name is Max Koenig. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Well, I am very excited about this uh, abstract for a couple of reasons. The first being that I feel like it has great potential. And the second being that I think many of us don't know anything about how CAR-T works. So this looked into the use of CAR-T um, in antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. It's been an exciting area for us lately in the wake of this recently published study in Nature Medicine about lupus. Uh, but there are some specifics to the study that you did that I thought were particularly exciting. So for starters though, would you like to give us a primer on what CAR-T is? Absolutely, and I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated by introducing another concept, because there are slight variations. But the important thing is that all of these cellular therapies that we're talking about are basically engineered T-cells. In the current state, these are used in cancer immunotherapy, uh, typically for treating B-cell cancers. We have about six FDA-approved products at the moment, all used for cancer indications, none of them for rheumatic disease. But obviously, as we heard over this conference, there's a lot of clinical, preclinical noise in this area and a very exciting thing. So. When we talk about cellular therapies, we're really thinking about engineering a T-cell. So generally, uh, we take autologous T-cells from a patient, so they are aphorist, and then you engineer in multiple different ways. For CAR T-cells, you would use some mechanism to introduce a new genetic segment that encodes for a CAR, which is a chimeric antigen receptor, which then has the ability to bind to a specific um, target that you're going after typically in the moment, this is CD19 or another B-cell marker. Now, that would do pretty much equivalent things that B-cell depleting antibodies do, but in a more potent way. Now, I'm going to make it a little bit more complicated by saying there are more than one way to engineer a T-cell. Um, so, in, in our case, we were interested to 
think about like where could these therapies go in the next 10 years. And we're particularly interested in figuring out if there are ways that we can engineer the T cell to not only deplete all B cells, but really just go after the autoreactive B cells that cause the disease and leaving the 97 to 95% of B cells that are normal and protect us untouched. So we're doing this actually by not engineering or introducing a car, but by engineering the T cell receptor directly. So what we're calling um, the therapy that we're working on is actually a catcher, a chimeric autoantigen TCR, T cell receptor. I like that. You need a good name for something that's going to stick. It needs to be catchy. <laughs> no, but I actually, I also truly like the concept. I think that uh, I am maybe inappropriately skeptical of the lupus data uh, because I also think that we already have B cell depleting agents. But the idea of targeting a specific subset of B cells sounds truly revolutionary to me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did in this particular study and how that fits in? Absolutely. So uh, this is more of a proof of concept in the preclinical space at the moment. So we're, we're basically figuring out whether something uh, as specific as we hope to do can actually be done. So the hypothesis is that we can take somebody's T cells and engineer them in a way that they could really go after a specific subset of B cells. So in, in the case that we first applied this, we're going after antiphospholipid syndrome specifically um, because we know that there are pathogenic antibodies that target um, beta-2 glycoprotein, specifically domain 1. And if you inject those into a mouse, the mouse develops APS. So it's pretty straightforward. And if you block it, the mouse doesn't develop APS. <laughs> so, you know, if you were able to go after that subset of B cells, uh, it has a lot of potential to potentially, you know, deplete that subset of B cells, but prevent the common complications that we have with B-cell depleting antibodies and probably also with CAR T-cell therapies, which is infection, no vaccine responses, decreased anti-tumor immunity. I want to dwell on that briefly because that was another reason that I was somewhat skeptical of CAR-T is that the risk of somewhat serious immune reconstitution syndromes and sort of hyperinflammatory states is not, it was relatively high, somewhere around 10 or more percent. So um, this particular uh, approach that you're doing, you think may have less of that. Can you explain why? Because I think it is actually quite uh, tangible and it makes a lot of sense. Right. And you know, to be fair, there's not a lot of data at the moment, so this is mostly speculative. And, and, and like extrapolating a little bit from the cancer literature, where we know that if you um, target patients who have a B cell cancer, but the cancer is in remission um, or fully depleted, they have less cytotoxicity, like less CRS, less side effects. It's not perfect, but that's the trend. Now, it really comes down to, I think, the amount of target cells that you're going after. So in cancer, your whole body is basically auto, like, pathogen, like cancerous B cells. So the burden of target cell is high, so you have a lot of T cell activation, a lot of immune side effects. Um, if you compare that to autoimmunity, where we typically have a very normal number of T cells in general um, uh, and B cells in general, um, you can imagine that uh, in that setting, the fraction of B cells that you're really trying to deplete is low, right? And even just, you know, just having regular B cell depleting, depleting all B cells is still a relatively small burden of B cell number compared to somebody with cancer. So I think there's a, a correlation between the number of target cells and the number of T cell activation and the number of immune, immune side effects. 
makes a lot of sense. So in your study, how successful were you at targeting these specific B cells in this preclinical study? Right. So I want to say we're early, right? This is proof of concept. But we're, we will be able to show that by engineering the T cell receptor directly, by introducing uh, autoantigen into the T cell receptor, in this case beta-2 glycoprotein 1, we're able to take away the native reactivity of the T cell receptor and replaces with a new ability to bind specifically the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein D1 specific B cells, the autoreactive B cells. So we're able to show that we can target and specifically deplete that subset of B cells, but not touch the normal B cells. Very, very cool. So uh, the biggest question of the day, what's next for this? Where's your next step gonna be? Well, we, we got us, the hope is, right, that we can translate it. So we'll gotta test it in, in great detail in preclinical models. And then the big question is like, how can we translate it effectively, right? Um, there is a lot that I think needs to be figured out. I think this is always the process, but the hope is that 10 years from now, we might be at a place where some therapy in that space could become to, uh, available for our patients. Wow, that's very cool. Ten years from now, I'll be reflecting on this and thinking that I was there on the first stage. You're like, Max, where, where is this? <laughs> exactly. Right. No, no, I'm optimistic. Uh, well, thank you so much for following our coverage at Room Now. Um, thank you so much, and congratulations on the plenary session. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yep, anytime. <laughs>
Uh, in these patients, they had the, the clinical and the um, immunological criteria for it. Uh, in addition to histories of VTE, 51% had thrombocytopenia, 43% had valvulopathy related to um, antiphospholipid syndrome. 74% were on anticoagulation at the time of their diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And what they found is these patients are very, very sick. So the relapse rate for DAH is 41% at just one year. Um, and then within six months, it's a quarter of these patients, 26%, will have a, a recurrent DAH. Um, risks for, for having relapse and severe disease, triple positivity, thrombocytopenia, and not surprisingly, having had more uh, intensive care, things like getting IVIG or Plex or requiring mechanical ventilation. But the mortality rate is high. It's 19% at one year, and it's 38% at five years. So this is showing that the group of patients that have life-threatening complications with DAH are, are surprisingly, not surprisingly, a very sick group of patients, but that the relapse rate is very, very high, as is the mortality. So these are patients that really need to be closely followed and more and better understood in their treatment. Have a great day from, from ACR. Hello everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie. This is a room now hydroxychloroquine update from the American College of Rheumatology meeting. And you can see I'm going to cover a lot of different presentations. Let's start with a brief summary of why hydroxychloroquine should be background therapy in all lupus patients. And I've circled at the bottom. Please never forget, this is the only medicine that improves the survival of people with lupus. And you can see that's been proven by multiple research groups, including my own. Our paper is the one headed by Deanna Hill. So I thought you'd be very interested in this study. This is from the Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics cohort, which is an inception cohort. Natalie Costadoet-Shalomo, who pioneered checking hydroxychloroquine levels, looked at hydroxychloroquine levels, and she had to use serum, but she made a very simple correction to get them close to what a whole blood level would have shown. Now, in one of the figures shown in her presentation, you can see that with severe non-adherence, there's a difference in time to damage, but she also saw an increase in mortality. So you can add this to the many studies now that have proven an important reason why everyone should be on hydroxychloroquine, even if their skin and joint lupus is under good control. Don't stop it. But here's a study where the study itself was not about hydroxychloroquine, but then Murray Urowitz went up to the microphone and pointed out something very important that I had missed. So this is a study from April George. She's one of the you know, up and coming superb investigators in lupus who looks at big data sets. And she was actually presenting on the contemporary incidence of lupus nephritis from a large national data set. And what Dr. Urowitz pointed out was here under medication use, 
just see hydroxychloroquine, you know, 39% or less. And this is a, a database of people with insurance. There's no access to care issue here. So isn't this atrocious? In academic centers, you know, we, we won't be at 100% because some of our patients will have either intolerance, a true allergy, or will develop retinopathy. But most academic centers are going to be like 85, 90% hydroxychloroquine. Why isn't this message getting out into the community? So I wanted to remind you of some wisdom from C. Everett Koop one of our very interesting surgeon generals. And he was the one that said, drugs don't work in patients who don't take them. And unfortunately what's happened, I'm afraid, is because of the ophthalmology guidelines, people are being prescribed less hydroxychloroquine, not just that they're not prescribed it at all. So I wanted to remind you of a second very important finding from our group which is that the prescribed hydroxychloroquine dose has nothing to do with the whole blood level, which is what determines efficacy. In the red line, you see 1,000 milligrams, which is our goal for the whole blood level. Not this five milligram per kilogram rule. We have to individualize it so that patients are getting an effective whole blood level. Now, here's the next abstract that I thought was really instructive. And this was supposed to be a bulimumab abstract, the goal being to show, as it did, that bulimumab reduces renal flares in the combined GSK database. But there was a very interesting finding, which is that hydroxychloroquine use reduced the risk of renal flare. You can see the hazard ratio went down to 0.66 and the p-value was very significant. Our group and others have shown that hydroxychloroquine use prevents or reduces later kidney damage. This may be one of the mechanisms. So hydroxychloroquine isn't all the lupus nephritis guidance documents. It needs to be bold print, I think. But there are concerns, and these are real concerns, about hydroxychloroquine in the heart. And so the first concern is hydroxychloroquine in that very rare adverse event of cardiomyopathy. Now, here's a study of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and it's being done in both lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, hydroxychloroquine had a negative association with heart failure. So although there will be those rare cases of hydroxychloroquine cardiomyopathy, overall, hydroxychloroquine is good for the heart muscle. What about QTC prolongation? Because you remember that came up during the COVID burst where hydroxychloroquine was being given when, of course, it turned out it didn't work. But along with the fact that COVID was in the heart and patients were on antibiotics that prolonged the QTC. Now, have we put this to rest? No, no, I don't think so. And so here is a study from one of my former lupus fellows. So I'm so glad to see her still involved in lupus research. And here's what they found. They did find quite a bit of prolonged QTC. They didn't find bad arrhythmias. 
And the mean dose of hydroxychloroquine was really quite low, it was 276. So their conclusion was QTC prolongation was increased with hydroxychloroquine users, but it did not reach statistical significance. Now, I think this is the study that has a really important take home message, meaning it's gonna change how I practice this week. And that's that our patients are on so many drugs that prolong the QT. In particular, as you know, 30% of people with lupus also have depression. So in this presentation, you can see the multiple factors that prolong the QT. It's not just hydroxychloroquine. And you can see that cardiac disease in and of itself and cardiac manifestations, but there are antidepressants. So I think now that I'm going to change my practice, and if the person is on an antidepressant and HCQ, I will get a baseline EKG. Uh, before this presentation, I was sort of very laid back and not bothering to do EKGs. So every time I go to the ACR meeting, I learn something. I want to thank you for listening. I want to remind you that Room Now is there for you at the ACR, but every day of the year as well. Thank you. Hello, my name is Yus Yusuf. I'm reporting for Room Now. I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Uh, today, I would like uh, to discuss uh, an abstract that I found uh, interesting and will be useful in our uh, clinical practice. This abstract is also uh, quite uh, thought-provoking. Uh, so the abstract uh, title, uh, the number is 1463. So this uh, abstract uh, was uh, presented at the press release uh, SLE as well. Um, so this is a study about... Um, trying to uh, evaluate the outcomes of patients who do not have uh, lupus nephritis but uh, were but you know but were found to have low grade proteinuria so what happened uh, you know to them whether you know do they progress into full blown lupus nephritis or did they get uh, better naturally or did they remain you know stable on its own um, so uh, the several uh, uh, guidelines from uh, different countries uh, have different cutoff. Uh, I think in America, uh, the, the cutoff for a renal biopsy if, uh, is if persistent uh, proteinuria of more than 0.5 gram, uh, and that probably indicates um, uh, you know, biopsy, whereas uh, other countries may, may vary. Um, so uh, in this study, um, so they have, um, so they look into 151 uh, patients uh, who had um, between uh, low grade aproteinuras between 0 .2, uh, 0 0.2 and also 0 .0, uh, 0.5 gram. Uh, so they then um, look into the outcome uh, at uh, two years. Um, so what they found, uh, there were a, a, a split, 50% uh, 50%, 50%, 50%, um, you know, 50% of the patient uh, 
they call it progressor. So uh, whether these patients then progress uh, to uh, urine proteinuria of more than 0.5 gram, uh, whereas another 50% um, you know, remain the same or um, become normalized. So uh, of uh, these you know, uh, 50% who uh, progress into more than 0.5 gram you know, per day proteinuria, um, so what uh, they found, there were, there were two types uh, of um, uh, 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 phenotypes as well. Uh, one they called it uh, the fast progressor. So basically, what happened? Um, so these patients um, uh, progress really fast to 0.5 within two years. Uh, and where else? Uh, the other one is slow progressor. Um, so they progress to uh, a cutoff of 0.5 and above. Um, is you know, uh, more than more than two years. And what they found that uh, they also did um, uh, kidney biopsy. So um, uh, 16 out of 20, so 80% of the people who uh, were fast progressor uh, will actually um, have a biopsy positive um, uh, lupus nephritis that were uh, that required some treatment. So overall, um, the 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 uh, the rate of positivity of uh, renal biopsy were eleven uh, percent. Um, so therefore, um, what this, does this uh, study tell us? So um, this study actually uh, reminded us uh, that uh, low uh, grade uh, proteinuria may not necessarily be benign. So I think if we do see this in the clinic, for instance, if we do a urine dipstick and there were like a one or two plus, I think what we should do, we should quantify them. And if it's not normal and if it's, and, and, and it was taken uh, correctly, you know, for example, it was not taken during um, the patients uh, had a water infections or uh, during the period, I think what we should do, we should uh, aim to uh, monitor this protein, uh, uh, proteinuria uh, because uh, half of the patients potentially could progress uh, into um, uh, uh, spiraling uh, up uh, the level and also progression to the nephritis. So I think it's really uh, um, it's an important studies. Um, also, this uh, study also um, uh, also pro provide like a framework. Uh, that um, maybe we also need a, a better biomarkers uh, in this you know, uh, group, which could be considered as at risk, uh, you know, to progress into kidney disease. Um, so I hope uh, you find uh, my uh, summary uh, useful. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, and I hope uh, you continue to follow uh, our coverage uh, at Room Now uh, through YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and also Twitter. Thank you. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from Room Now uh, at ACR 2022. Uh, we have with us Candace Feldman from Boston. And um, the abstract that I think we are going to discuss is 1099. Uh, it's empowering patients with lupus uh, through their photographs, a photo voice method to understand social determinants of health. Um, so Candace, very, very interesting abstract. Um, uh, so what did you guys do? Sure. So this was a, a study that we did where we gave our patients who were 
individuals with lupus who had a medical or psychosocial complexity or both. And we gave them cameras, disposable cameras, or we had them use their smartphones and we asked them to take photographs of things in their environments that they felt affected their health. So their neighborhoods, where they got their food, uh, where they accessed their health care. And then we interviewed them once we had their photographs and we had them narrate their, uh, their photographs with us and tell us sort of the story of their lives and their environment and how that affects their lupus, how it affects their lupus care. Uh, and it, you know, with really this, try, this attempt to understand the influence of social determinants of health on lupus care. That's very interesting because sometimes you don't get an insight into what's going on in their daily lives and this was, this seems like an attempt to get to that so that we can help them. Um, what were your key findings? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the things that we were interested in is we were trying to understand what are the recurrent themes that, that patients are showing us pictures of. So one thing that uh, one of our wonderful research assistants, Yasu Yulis, presented today is she showed photographs of stairs and what an obstacle that was for patients. So, and, they, and the descriptions that they gave of how they, for example, got their groceries up the stairs or who in their family supported them to actually literally physically help them up the front stairs of their house. We also learned about aspects of people's neighborhoods, whether it was neighborhood safety or the, the neighborhood advocate or the person who kind of looks out for their neighbors. So this idea of neighborhood cohesion and how that impacts people's daily lives. We learned about the centrality of food and barriers to accessing food, whether it was an issue of uh, food insecurity or whether it was more of a um, mobility issue of, you know, I just don't buy food that's on a lower shelf because of my limitation down. So we, we learn sort of the features of people's environment that really kind of directly help uh, impact their health and just impact their daily lives. And you've done a lot of work on how um, neighborhoods affect patients. So this is sort of zooming in a little more. Exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, a lot of the other work that, that we've done has been more like a bird's eye view to say like, oh, you live in this neighborhood, you know, what is the average um, median income of houses in that neighborhood, for example, and how does that impact how, you, how individuals living in that neighborhood access care? But this was really a deep dive into the lives of seven patients where we asked them to, you know, tell us everything and then to be the ones to narrate the story, which I think was the, the power of this project compared to some of the others. True. And I think that with the event of social media, TikTok videos mm -hmm. and Instagram and a lot of patients with lupus who are young who, who do access the world like that, um, I see that there's a lot more that can, th that kind of data that we can get uh, from there. Mm -hmm. um, what are your next plans? Are you planning to use more data from open source? stuff like that? Or? Yeah, it's a great idea. You know, it's it's sort of going, in some ways, it's sort of a merge of two worlds, right? In some ways, part of what we're doing is almost like recreating the old school physician who goes to people's homes to provide care, right? And really trying to understand where a person lives and how that affects their health with the kind of new era of, you know, how people interact with social media and smartphones and, you know, how that impacts their health. So I think, you know, so so a big piece of this is sort of how do you almost like merge the two to, to see how both can be 
leverage to improve our understanding of people's health and also intervene to improve people's health. So, you know, one of the things that we're doing is we're incorporating this method into a number of other studies. So, for example, uh, we've already incorporated into a study of medication adherence to see where people, for example, keep their medications because that is a sort of piece of, well, if I know where you keep it, it could maybe help give me a clue of how I could remind you to take it. So that's That's interesting. That's the way we think of how we as caregivers in our own families do, right? Where do you keep mm-hmm. your pills? That's the first thing you'd ask somebody who's sick in the family. Exactly. So I, I like the new Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. method, sorry. Um, but with that, um, any last thoughts, anything that you want, to, you want people to take away from this? You know, I think that one of the things that for us was really powerful was, you know, in the past, we as researchers are the one asking the questions and sort of guiding uh, the topics that we want to understand. And the power of this method is that you're giving that microphone and that camera to the patient and they're guiding the Mm -hmm. questions. And for me, that was really powerful and really helped redefine the way I think about research. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, So this is the interesting photo voice technique uh, in research now. And um, with that, signing off, this is Bella Mehta at Room Now. And if you can follow me for more content on uh, Twitter, Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm attending the American College of Rheumatology Convergence 2022 and reporting for Room Now. And I'm very excited to share with you three abstracts that I found extremely interesting, and that might be relevant to your practice. So do you know how we order ANAs a lot? Um, well, there have been multiple guidelines saying, number one, don't repeat the ANA. Number two, don't order the ANA unless you have a suspicion of someone having a rheumatic disorder right? So abstract 1278, this is a population-based study examining the trends of ANA testing in the upper Midwest of the United States over the last 10 years. And they found 72,000 unique individuals who underwent over 134,000 ANA tests. 46% of the total tests were repeated tests. And the mean time between repeating a test is 2.7 years. Women were twice as likely to have repeat testing compared to men. Now, if you remember a few years back, the American College of Rheumatology and the Canadian Rheumatology Association partnered with choosing wisely in order to reduce healthcare costs. And they made this recommendation with rare exceptions, repeat ANA testing or ANA subserologies add very little, if any, clinical value to patient management, such as monitoring disease activity, confirming remission, or predicting disease flares. So do not order an ANA unless it's necessary, and also don't repeat it. Now, abstract 0228, this is very interesting here. It details the survey results of internal medicine residents on how they order ANAs. So they took a survey, 46 residents responded to this one survey conducted in May of 2022. Now, most of the residents, about 61% of them, ordered both the ANA and the ENA panel when they were evaluating somebody for a possible connective tissue disease. They just go out and order both ANA and ENA. And I don't know if you know this, but each one of those single tests in the ENA panel is about 20 bucks. And so that could add up. Now, 17% will only order an ANA initially, and that's such a low number. 
This is also interesting here. 74% of residents would not repeat an ANA in someone with a known ANA-associated rheumatic disease like lupus. So what about the other 25%? Why are they repeating an ANA in lupus patients with the known diagnosis? I don't know. And then 59% of them, and this is scary, would order an ANA for nonspecific symptoms as back pain, fatigue, and myalgias. Choosing wisely specifically said, don't do that. 89% of these residents, to their credit, were not aware of any recommendations for appropriate use of ANA testing. So bottom line is we got to do a lot better job training our medical students and our residents about appropriate ANA and ENA testing so that they won't repeat these tests. They won't order them unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, so there you have it. And then I want to share with you um, one more abstract. So this one's actually pretty funny. This is abstract 0058, and it's a quality improvement project. Okay, and this is with Lehigh Valley Health Network, LVHN. And what they did was they instituted a hospital order set for reflex testing to the ENA panel only if the ANA is positive at one to 80 or higher. Now, they still allowed rheumatologists to order both, but they really restricted orthopedics, internal medicine, family medicine, and neurology. And guess what? They saved $26,000 over three months. So my take on this is leave it to the professionals. Let the rheumatologists order the ENA panel. This is Dr. Katherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter. Hello, my name is uh, Yusuf. I'm reporting for Room Now. Uh, I'm from uh, Leeds, United Kingdom, and I'm reporting uh, as a virtual attendee this year. Today is a day two of ACR, and there have been plenty more uh, wealth of data that have been presented. Um, so the one the, there's a few uh, abstract that caught my eyes, and one of them uh, was presented at the press release uh, SLE. Um, so the abstract number is uh, 0957. Um, so as uh, we know, um, entero antibody uh, positivity can be associated with uh, congenital, congenital heart block uh, uh, in a pregnant woman. Uh, therefore, um, it is important uh, to screen um, these patients uh, with a fetal echocardiogram uh, and uh, several uh, guide guidelines um, uh, in different different, uh, different countries have got different uh, variable approach. However, majority in America and Canada, um, the guidelines uh, stated that uh, the patient uh, it should be um, screened um, at uh, between week 16 to 18. So um, in this study, so this is a study in Montreal, a single study, a single center study. Um, so they looked uh, into uh, 44 uh, pregnancies. Um, so the objective were trying to uh, evaluate whether um, these uh, guidelines, uh, these guidelines uh, were met, and if uh, there was uh, any uh, uh, sequelae, if this uh, were not met. So in this um, study, um, what uh, they found uh, that only 32% of the patient uh, were screened, uh, you know, at 18 or uh, before 18 weeks. So I think this is a uh, 
quite um, uh, dissatisfying because of uh, um, really these patients should be um, screened earlier in order to prevent from complication. Although um, the risk of congenital heart block uh, in uh, in a first pregnancy particularly uh, are the same with other general population, about 3%. But I think because they do have these antibodies, so we should uh, be um, you know, taking more extra cautions. Um, so what happened um, in terms of the uh, outcomes? Uh, so they found um, there were five uh, cases of congenital heart block. Um, so two of them uh, were actually a referral after the patient had underwent uh, screening earlier. So these patients had congenital heart block during uh, after 20 weeks pregnancy. However, three out of five um, cases were uh, actually uh, detected during the first screening. And the first screening was done either at 20 weeks or more. So, um, and when uh, these were detected, so these uh, uh, these fetus uh, have already uh, in the third degree heart block. So um, this is called, um, again, uh, this is uh, clinically relevant uh, is because if these you know, women uh, would have had uh, a screen earlier, then this would have been picked up earlier and probably uh, the degree of heart block will be much more milder that you can you know, treat them with hydroxychloroquine and dexamethasones rather than you know, the, the third degree, so which usually uh, may or may not be reversible. Um, so in terms of clinical practice, I think this uh, really uh, enhanced uh, and also uh, really opened uh, the eyes of uh, us as the clinicians uh, who've been, who are dealing uh, with uh, a, a, a woman with lupus uh, to make sure, like, you know, to counsel them and also to make sure to monitor them uh, and also liaise with the obstetrician uh, colleague in order to mo monitor for this clinical heart block in a timely manner. Uh, because time is muscle in this uh, uh, unique population. Uh, I hope that you find that my uh, summary is useful. Uh, and uh, please uh, follow uh, Room Now for more coverage through YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, my Twitter handle is use6user. Thank you. Hello, my name is Michelle Petrie, and this topic is life or organ and threatening lupus. What to do? Is there anything new? And I'm going to concentrate on two abstracts from the ACR meeting. Now, first, let's put this in perspective. There's lots of life threatening or organ threatening lupus out there. And of course, we have approaches. Now I put a SLE with catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome high up there because you know it can have as high as a 50% mortality. And I approach that with rituximab. I would love to use egolizumab if only I could get it approved in time to help the patient. But there's so many other things. There's rapidly progressive GN, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, myocarditis, recurrent lupus enteritis, you know, really severe thrombocytopenia. And for many of these, I'm going to respond with rituximab or cyclophosphamide. But I have patients who fail rituximab or cyclophosphamide. And again, we've tried to find novel ways of treating them. 
for a long time at Hopkins, we were doing high dose cyclophosphamide you know, without stem cell rescue, although other centers did it with stem cell rescue. We haven't even had two of my patients who had a haploidentical bone marrow transplant. One went into a long-term remission. But now, you know, the hot thing is CAR-T. Now, CAR-T has lots of risks, and I don't want to minimize, of course, rituximab and cyclophosphamide have risks as well. CAR-T risks, though, are not familiar to rheumatologists, and so they include cytokine release syndrome, CAR-T cell-related encephalopathy, ICANS, just another term for the neurologic problems with CAR-T, the lymphodepleting regimens, the fludarabine and cyclophosphamide have their own toxicity. And then, of course, both short-term and long-term, we have to be worried about infections and hypogammaglobulinemia. And finally, of course, are the costs, right? We're talking about almost $500,000 per patient. You know, that would pay for a lot of rituximab and cyclophosphamide. So how did this get so much attention? It started with this N of one study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we all saw it. And this was obviously a multi-system active lupus patient. And you can see within one month of getting the CAR-T, all the organs calmed down. And this patient was just left with some anti-DNA. So this patient had a good short-term outcome. Long-term, big question mark, right? So now presented at this meeting, but, but also at ULAR and also now published is the five patient series. In the early follow-up, these five patients met the lupus low disease activity state and Doris remission state. Although one patient had a SLE day of two which means to me that they didn't meet Doris remission. Now the B cells do reappear at day 100 and these good outcomes were maintained through day 100. The safety was remarkably good. There was mild cytokine release syndrome in just three. You know, I must say, you know, maybe they were just really very lucky because when you give CAR-T to larger numbers, I'm afraid we're gonna see much more toxicity. But the big question is, where's the long-term follow-up? They haven't had a chance to figure that out. And you should ask yourself, what would you expect from something like this? What do you want the remission rate to be at five years? Should it be you know, like way over 50% to justify something like this? So now I want to turn to APS, and this is a laboratory study, not a patient study, and it comes from the group of Max Kernick here at Hopkins. And now instead of CAR-T, he's talking about chimeric autoantigen T-cell receptor. What does this mean? We're not going to get rid of all the CD19 cells. This is going to be targeted just to those that make anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1. So he has reprogrammed T-cells at the laboratory bench to be selective. 
And he's proven they're selective once he does this. He's only getting the anti-beta 2B cells. And then, you know, there's nothing to produce beta 2 GP1. So he calls this precision cellular immunotherapy. And remember, the strong rationale here is to avoid depleting all B cells to limit the infection risk because people with lupus, one of their major causes of death is infection. So he's shown that at least on the laboratory bench, he can treat autoimmunity without impairing the protective part of the immune system. Now, of course, there are limitations, aren't there? We have to prove that this will work in vivo. And in a patient series, not only must it prevent thrombosis, but it must eliminate the need for anticoagulation. Because you know, in your APS patients and mine, not only do we have the problem of recurrent thrombosis, but we have the problem that these patients really need warfarin. The DOAC trials have shown that DOACs are inferior to warfarin and they are at risk of bleeding. So to conclude, CAR-T is hot right now, but I've been around so long, I've seen lots of other things be hot for lupus and then not pan out. And I would include total nodal irradiation, but even the work that I did on high-dose cyclophosphamide, because when we had the control group of NIH cyclophosphamide, with long-term follow-up, both groups were the same. But I'm very enthusiastic about precision cellular immunotherapy, right? You know, for other diseases as well, where there's just, you know, one thing that went wrong, whether that's, you know, hyperthyroidism or myasthenia gravis or pemphigus, but for things like antiphospholipid syndrome, wow. Now, you know, maybe lupus is too complicated for precision cellular immunotherapy, and if that's the case, then remember, I'm not going to be enthusiastic about CAR-T until I see the five-year durability. Thank you for listening. Please remember that Room Now has been there for you at the ACR meeting, but it's going to be there for you every single week.